You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. As we gather, albeit in a very different way, around the Lord's table this afternoon, using these seemingly insignificant uh, plastic cups, we're still demonstrating something of great importance. Through the very simple actions today, once again we are declaring through the crumbs of bread and through the wedness of the wine what it cost Christ. And that mummy or daddy or Mrs. X or Miss Y are doing this today because they are sinners trusting in Jesus Christ to save them. It'd be very, very easy to miss on Communion Sunday, just as it would be very easy to miss in Genesis chapter 6 in the story of Noah. Amidst the ark building and animals entering, there is a focus on the family. There's an undoubted focus on the family. For having left that great list of names a couple of weeks ago at the end of Genesis 5, we notice that Genesis lingers long over Noah's family. It really stands out. They really stand out. In Genesis 5, verse 32, Noah's sons are the first full list of names of a family given to us since Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Not since then do we get the full list of family names. And we are introduced to Shem and Ham and Japheth. They have a very special place in the story. And then in Genesis 6, verse 9, recounts for us, this is the account of Noah and his family where the list of sons is repeated for us once again. And then just as God instructs Noah over ark building, he also stresses in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Noah and his family are saved in the flood. And I am sure that despite the embarrassment of their old man building an ark in the desert, the doubts and the turmoil of their hearts as they entered this cavernous box and had the door shut behind them and the rains hadn't even started, that as they then eventually bobbed in that mass of water for months and months on end, as they sat in the safety of the ark, having looked out the window of the ark and seen their friends swept away to their death, how they must have been oh so thankful for their dad that his fixated and immovable faith was in God alone, and that saved them. There they were, safe from God's watery judgment because of the fixed determination of their dad. Oh, it's my prayer as a parent to my children and those of you who have been blessed with family that they might see in me, that they might see in you a fixated faith in the God alone who saves. And those of you who are that little bit younger here today, that you might look at us and be led to ask, even on this communion Sunday, what is it about your God? Why are you so taken with this, Jesus? How come this Savior dominates your life and your decisions and your actions? And if you're sitting here today or having grown up a home where Jesus is honored and his saving power shared and his glory is extolled, And now you find yourself in your teens or your 20s or even older. And you have your own thoughts. You make your own decisions. You have your own questions. But let me urge you to be thankful that you've been exposed to the only means by which you can be saved from God's eternal judgment. 
And that is in the person of God's own son who faced God's own punishment at the cross. Children here today, no matter how young, teens, young people, with believing parents, you have exactly the same choice. Find safety in the same God that mom and dad worship or stand outside the ark and be swept away to your own judgment. The choice is yours. But for parents and grandparents here today, we must reconsider our priorities. Because Noah's boys, despite the cringeworthy nature of their dad's boat building, saw something in his life that convinced them it was the right thing to go, the right place to be. They trusted in his word, even though they were filled with hundreds of questions. They knew that in their dad was a man who could be trusted, whose unshakable faith in the promises of an eternal God ultimately saved their lives and enabled them as a family to restart a new life together. On the basis of the faith of one man, his whole family was saved. Genesis 6 gives a clear focus on the family. How is it with yours? And how is it with mine? But secondly, let's not forget that this was a floating zoo. Boys and girls, probably about anything you think about Noah, the first thing you think about is the animals in the ark. And you're absolutely right. I wish we had more time to get into it today, but you can't help feeling that's what the ark appears to be when it was built and when it was filled. 135 meters long, 23 meters wide, 14 meters high. You can see in the screen what it compares to today. So it's about double the size of a jumbo jet. It's about the same size as a, as a nuclear submarine. It's uh, about the same size, slightly bigger than an American football pitch. And look at even a house, the average size house there. It was huge. And it wasn't the kind of art that we see in our children's room that looked like this. It was flat. It was a flat structure. And the proportions were such that even those who have tried to experiment with this have said it's almost impossible to capsize the way it was designed. But here's the question that's often asked. I'm sure you've thought about it. Go on. You probably have thought about it. How on earth did Noah get all those animals into the ark? When you think about all the species in the world, how on ark, never mind on earth, did he get them in? Some people might think that was problematic. Some people might think I might discredit the story and make it fiction or a whole myth. Well, no. Because if you actually sit down and do your homework, and I'm thankful for a book that I've seen by Tim LaHaye and John Morris called The Ark on Ararat. And they use a list of all the animal species given by a very famous American leading naturalist. And it comes to just over one million different species. That's a huge number, obviously. But of course, not all those species would have had to go in the ark. Because did you know the majority of species in the world or in the earth are underwater? So if you remove most of those who would have quite happily survived in the water, the mollusks, the fish, the sponges, the worms, and all of those, it comes to literally hundreds of thousands of species. You're actually left with only 70,000. One male, one females. However, we tend to think of large animals in the ark. Let's face it, most of us when we think of the ark have this picture in our mind of the elephant with its trunk hanging out the side, don't we? Or, you know, or the giraffe sticking its neck out to see what's going on. You know, we all have that picture in our minds. But did you know the average size of an animal is smaller than a sheep? The average size of an animal is smaller than a sheep. And you can get 240 sheep into an average rail carriage. And since the volume of the ark is the equivalent of 569 such carriages, calculations show when actually you put them all together, 
the animals only took up 50% of the ark. <laughs> so if anyone comes to you and says it's a whole lot of nonsense or a lot of myth, you tell them to clear off and go and do their maths and see what they find. And that fact isn't just that the animals, but Noah's family. We often think, don't we, that the animals went in two by two. So did Noah and his family. It wasn't just the animals went in two by two. Mr. Noah and his wife and his sons in there, they went two by two as well. Why? So whenever all those other creatures in the world were wiped out, they could recreate and they'd be reproducing time and time again. So no matter who you chase your family tree back to, you're either a son or daughter of Shem, Ham or Japheth here today. Definitely, you are. And that's why you're sitting here. All thanks to what God did to preserve some people on the earth. But the interesting thing about this ark, as I pointed out, if you have a look at it there, if I was to ask you what other piece of furniture, what other thing in your experience tonight does that ark look like? Some of you might be hesitant to say it, but you'd agree with me, it looks like a coffin. It looks like a place of death, doesn't it? And as Noah and his son spent all that time investing in something that all their friends and their wider family would have laughed at and thought, why are you wasting? That's a dead-end job you're doing. I want you to think about what we're doing today. Because around this table, in about 20 minutes' time, we're going to be celebrating a death. Aren't we? We're going to be celebrating a, a death. A place of death that brings life. You see, we're very good at celebrating life, aren't we? You know, the achievements of sports stars and musicians and young people burning with energy. And we all go misty-eyed over a little baby or whatever. But we might seem like weirdos here today celebrating a death. But that's what we're doing. And that's because we have come to see that the way to eternal life, that multicolored fullness of life more vibrant and sensational and brimming over where we are free from the worries and the floods and the fears or viruses or doubts or the pain of depression and disappointments greater than we can ever imagine comes through a death. Sin swept away. Guilt flushed away. Condemnation crushed. Our sufferings will one day all be sucked down the plug hole of eternity forever. And just as those animals one day piled out of the ark with all their bleating and meowing and calling and braying and the excitement, and Mr. Noah and his wife, they breathed the air. They were safe. They were free. They were in a new world, saved in the coffin, in the death, in the place that looked like death. And can't you feel that solid ground today? the color and the noise, the joy and the explosion of life that we have never known it as before. But one day we will step into the new heavens and the new earth, a home of righteousness where it'll be colorful and we'll be free from all those fears bursting up with life all because of Christ's death. Focus on the family. An incredible floating zoo. And 30, the flood. Well, last time we saw God's good grief over sin, didn't we? A heart that was hurt for someone he had loved, had rebelled against him. Mankind, people like you and me, his own image, were scarred by sin, and that hurt God. And the only course of action was to take a just judge and take his, see that the guilty would deserve to be punished. And that's what he considers in verses 12 and 13. 
If I was asking you to do a word count in verses 12 and 13, which word appeared most? Have a quick look there. It's the word corruption. Corruption. Now, corruption kind of has all sorts of things that conjure up on our mind, but do you know what the word corruption in Hebrew simply means? A dirty stain in your coat. A dirty stain in your coat. That's what the word corruption means. A dirty stain on your coat. Now, I don't know why it actually seemed to happen to me. At the weddings I seem to go to, I either spill something on my suit, either in the first course, or as I think I've shared before, birds tend to find me very attractive, and I don't mean the female kind in that sense. I mean the birds that fly over and drop things that they shouldn't do when you're outside getting your photographs taken. That's happened to me twice at weddings in the last 10 years. And it's so hard to get a stain out of a suit. And everyone then is talking to you, kind of looking, aren't they? I found myself at three weddings in the last 10 years having to stand with people talking like that all the time. You know, just to get away from the fact I have a dirty stain on my suit. And you know what? The more you rub, the more mess you make. You know, you take it in the gents and you're kind of, and it just spreads. Folks, that's sin. The more you try and rub at it and try and sort it out yourself, the more it spreads. The more you try and cover it, the worse it looks. And so God's saying here, you need a new jacket. You need a new covering. I'm going to deal with that terrible stain of sin in your life. It reminds me of, you know, those old spaghetti westerns, you know, where the sheriff comes into town. And what's the thing he says? I'm going to clean up this town, you know? Our God, the ultimate hero of this world, steps into this world in the person of Jesus, and he comes to clean up this world. That is why he comes. But here in this moment, at this stage in human history, God sees the dirt and he says, I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to make all things new. Then we come on to see where faith is seen. Where faith is seen. And if you've ever needed an example of what faith looks like, go back and read over the story of Noah. If you want to really grow in your faith and see what faith looks like, read the story of Noah again, because it's seen in two ways. It's seen in his walking and seen in his working. It's seen in his walking and seen in his working. A fortnight ago we read in verse 8 that God found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, Noah recognized that he was a sinful man in a sinful place, and he sought out the help that he needed from God. He recognized that he needed God's grace. And isn't that the incredible thing? That we often think that we should run from God when we're sinners, but the very place we should run to is the God who forgives sin. But look at verse 9. Verse 9 is the hinge in this whole chapter. Noah walked faithfully with God. He was a man of faith. He did what was his great-great-grandfather, Enoch, had done before him. He walked with God. And whenever I think of walking, there's three things immediately come to my mind. If you walk with someone, you've got to be walking at the same speed, in the same direction, and have a shared relationship. Hospital Road, as you all well know, is, is kind of the loop, as people talk about, the, that highway to health. I, the number of people who walk past every day, the months in their tracksuit or with their liker on, and they're all, you know, they're all looking at their, and they're looking at their watches. And they're usually with someone. People are usually walking together. And the thing about walking partners or walking colleagues or friends you walk with, well, it's just that, isn't it? There are people who are going to say to you, oh, come on, keep going. We're only there. Keep it going. Let's keep, keep, keep a good pace. Or wise up if they're slowing down. 
God spent, or Noah spent years walking with God. Same pace, same direction, a friend. Like any walk, there'll have been times when I'm sure it felt frustrating, that maybe the ground felt slippery, at other times firm, when not much was said. Just like walkers, sometimes they're chatting, other times they're tired, and they just keep going. But Noah walked on with God. The one word I think that summarizes Noah's whole life is perseverance. Persevere. If ever there's a word we need to hear in these days, it's, look, folks, just, just keep going. Things are wicked the minute. It's tough. Keep going. Persevere. He was there for the walk and not just out for the stroll. And you see, there's the challenge. All too many of us in our Christian lives are out for the Sunday stroll, but we're not lifetime walkers. Some of us also like to go for a walk when we know there's going to be an exciting view at the end, or otherwise we think the walk's been a waste. But instead of enjoying the company that's with us, some of us like a stroll only if it leads to the spectacular. But the joy of the Lord in the regular, ordinary, day-to-day stuff. And this is all the more outstanding, or should I say outwalking, when we consider the environment in which Noah lived. His priorities were so completely different from that of the rest of the world. He was heading God's way, while the rest were heading the world's way. Noah lived a life that was blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. No one could pin anything on him. No one could say, you see that, Noah? In a world of corruption and violence, of sinful stains, Noah stood out as he walked on. And how was that witnessed in his work? Well, we reckon, if you add up all the dates and the ages that are mentioned in the Old Testament, that he probably worked in the ark for just around 100 years or so. 100 years! Imagine him hitting his thumb for the 50th time that month. Or watching the local kids scrawl on his front door again, Noah is nuts. Or hearing the jeers from the guys heading home from the pub on a Saturday night, standing outside Mr. Noah's house singing, singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. Aye, where's this rain, Noah? Very good. Well done. Or the local newspaper that every so often runs these sort of headlines, the ship that never gets to sea. Religious zealot Mr. Noah has once again taken up preaching his vintage sermons outside the builder's yard on a daily basis. His shocking messages have been shared by thousands of onlookers for nearly 60 years now, and he still persists despite the many setbacks and his own disregard for the obvious fact that his vessel is hundreds of miles from any open water. One neighbor commented, We thought that after a few years he would have got over this madness, and it was just a deluded phase that he was going through. You know, like some of those strange religious experiences that people have. But he still keeps hammering the nails. He still keeps preaching his sermons. And with all the more fervency with each week telling us that God's not pleased and this world is going to end. Noah? More like no idea. Come on, no one believes in that judgment sort of stuff these days, do they? Could have been written tomorrow. Could have been tomorrow's newspaper headline, that, couldn't it? God's judgment, ha, where? But God saw the sin. And God spoke to Noah, and God warned him as he walked, and Noah got to work, and he built the boat exactly the dimensions of God's blueprint, the roof, the roof, the flooring, the family, the filling, and God said, Noah did. Look at verse 22. Noah did everything, everything, just as God commanded him. Noah did 
everything just as God commanded him. I find that personally remarkably challenging. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. For over 100 years, Noah worked tirelessly, engineering a century of blood, sweat, abuse and tears, perseverance with God, obedience to God, marked Noah's life from beginning to end. Let me ask us in Union Road and those watching at home today, what is our Lord asking us to persist with, to keep steady at, to walk on or work on? Where do we need to be patient and persevering? God has called us not to be outstanding. God doesn't want us to be outstanding, but he does want us to be obedient. God isn't asking us to be radical and build his kingdom, but he asks us to be faithful and follow the king. Which leads us finally to the most obvious truth floating right before us today is that God always offers a way of salvation. God always offers a way of salvation. The judgment was coming. The flood was on its way. And Noah and his family needed a place of safety in the flood. The ark was God's provision and God's protection. And it's not just those outside who were going to get a good soaking. They were going to be swept away. I actually shudder to think, I, I, I'm not a particularly good swimmer. I love the open sea. I don't like swimming pools. I'm not a particularly good swimmer. I shudder to think what it would be like for those millions of people to have drowned in the flood. When the ark was just over there. It doesn't bear thinking about. To me, that, that would be the most horrific way to die, to be judged. And that's before we meet God. I mean, there are many unbelievers even sitting here, even watching this today, who aren't that bothered about hell and God's judgment because they see it as a place of just a long binge, an eternal party in the darkness with their mates where there'll be a bit of pain, but, you know, there's not too much to fear. But as we shall soon find out, God's judgment sweeps across everyone, young or old, school teachers and taxi drivers, nurses and farmers, and it sweeps them away out of God's presence forever. And those who have not accepted God's offer of salvation, they'll be gone forever. But there's always another way. Friends, there's always another way. For Noah, it was in the great wooden frame of an ugly boat that sailed through God's torrential judgment and sin. And for us, it's in the great wooden frame of an ugly Roman cross where Jesus was nailed firm, but it's there that he sailed straight into God's eternal judgment for sin. John T. Rhodes, in his book, Reading the Lost Ark, summarizes it like this. But how will he do it? How will God destroy sin without destroying all humankind? Christ will drown under the flood of God's wrath, but rise again from the waters to carry his people into a whole new world. And so God establishes a covenant with Noah. Look at verse 18. God reaches out to Noah and his family, and they enter the ark with his family, making this binding promise, a covenant promise. God is committing himself. And I use these terms very advisedly. Come hell or high water, that Noah and his family will be saved. And that word establishing, he established a covenant with Noah, is a nautical term. It's, it's a seafaring term. The word establishing means to plant your feet on firm ground. And if, any, if there was anyone who ever needed to hear a reassurance of planting your feet on firm ground, it was Noah and his family, wasn't it? How that would have meant so much more to them, as all they could do was look out of the ark and weep 
as they saw their neighboring farmers and villagers washed away, losing their feet, their crops, their cattle, their properties, the metals that would have sat in their mantelpiece, their bank accounts swept away, their businesses gone, everything gone. None of it could save them. Only this coffin-like ark. And as the ark rose and Noah and his family sat in it, they were safe. They were on solid ground. God's way of salvation is the only way of salvation. God's covenant promises could be tested and tried. And here they were found to be true because the ark traveled all those days and they rested on dry land once again. And if ever we need a reassurance that we can be sure of God's offer of salvation towards us, then look no further than the bread and the wine that we will share in today. The words of Jesus in the upper room in Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God is committing himself. And I use these words advisedly once again, come hell or high water, which he has already experienced on your behalf to bring Christians, those who trust in the Savior, those who are sharing in his death for sinners, actively able to say, he died for me. He was judged by God in my place. That cruel death washes away all my sin. That judgment he faced should have been mine. And that's what we're doing as we sit around communion. Remembering that it should have been us, but it fell upon him. And we today, therefore, can stand on solid ground. A family saved in a floating zoo as the flood of God's judgment burst out. But faith in God's offer of salvation saves. Let these words ring in our hearts today as we learn to walk on and work on. For he has committed himself, body and blood, to you. To you. To you. To you. He has done it.